Well, welcome to the City Church. My name is Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here. I want to welcome those of you watching online or joining us at one of our locations, Hope City, guys. We're pumped you're joining us right now as well. And you may not have realized this about me, and I know you'll be shocked, but I am not a fast man. Okay. I'm not a fast runner. I'm sure that surprises you, shocks you. You're probably thinking, Clayton, I, I assume you would be like lightning fast. I'm not, I'm not fast. Okay. I'm not slow either. I'm just kind of fast challenged, if you know what I mean, okay? And maybe some of you have been in the, the same boat. So normally when I run, though, I'm kind of on my own, like running around West Texas and my neighborhood and things like that, like I'm on my own. Like I was running early this morning all by myself, right? Okay, but if I'm ever like where our family lives in Austin or Fort Worth or Dallas or whatever, and you go to these running trails where a lot of people are running, like oftentimes I've run at Zilker Park in Austin and there's like professional running people there, you know, and, and they, they run and you're like, Clayton, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I don't run. Like, I, what are you talking about? Well, there's these trails that people run on in these bigger cities and uh, lots of people who are good at running run on them. And here's what I noticed that by being on this trail, I realized really quick, I'm not a runner. Like I'm not a good runner. And so all the time, every time I'm on one of these trails, people are passing me like crazy. I mean, just passing me over and over and over again. And when they pass, if they're polite and if they're experienced, here's what they say when they pass you on your left, right? That's what they're supposed to say. Anyways, they're supposed to say on your left. So, you know, they're coming. If you're a skier, snowboarder. I grew up skiing and snowboarding. If you've ever done that, you know, when people come flying by you, what they're supposed to say, if they're coming close to you is on your left to let you know they're coming and they're about to pass you. Here's what I want you to know this morning. God is on your left. Now you might be thinking, what are you talking about? Why, how, how's God on my left? Well, he's on your left, not in the sense of running by you or passing by you. He's on your left and that he wants to walk with you. And when God walks with you and invites you to walk with him, he's on your left. You see, God's desire all throughout the scripture, we learn, is to be with his people. And so in the old covenant, we see the tabernacle, which would become the temple where God would dwell among his people. In Jesus, in John chapter one, we see that God becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among his people to be with his people. We see the promise throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that God will be with you. And that literally means to walk with you. Like the, the word picture there in Hebrew and in Greek, when, when you look at the word picture there of God being with his people, it literally means walking step by step with you, holding your hand. Well, when God holds your hand, he holds you by his righteous right hand. You see, the scripture talks about the righteous right hand of God over and over and over again. And the righteous right hand of God represents many things. It represents the power of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, the plan of God, and the sovereign providence of God. That's what his righteous right hand in the scripture represents. And God wants to help you. He wants to walk with you. And when you reach out to walk with him, you reach out to him with your left hand. Because you're not greeting him and shaking his hand as an equal. When you walk with him and you hold his righteous right hand, you're walking hand in hand, step by step, which means you're holding his righteous right hand with your left hand. Now, your left hand represents need. It represents humility. It represents surrender. And so when I say God is on your left, here's what I mean. 
I mean, God wants to walk with you. He wants to hold your hand, but to do so means surrendering your life to him. Your plans, your desires, your dreams. It means walking with God means surrender. It means humbling yourself and saying, I need you. I'm not in control. You're in control. And so I'm going to hold the righteous right hand of God with my left hand. What keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from reaching out in humility and saying, God, I need you? Surrendering ourselves, our lives, our plans to God. What, what keeps us from doing that? I think most of us know the answer to that question. It's pride, right? If you're gonna have to reach out to the righteous right hand of God with your left hand that represents need and humility and surrender, the thing that would keep us from doing that is pride. We think we're in control. We think we know best. We think our way is best. And so those things keep us from reaching out to take hold of God's righteous right hand. But here's the problem. When we think we're in control and we think we can control ourselves and others and circumstances, it only leads to unmet expectations because you learn real fast you're not in control and you can't control other people. You can barely control yourself and you learn real quick you cannot control the circumstances of this life. But let me ask you, how many of you are control freaks in the room, okay? You don't have to raise your hand. Just think to yourself. No elbows, okay, to spouses or kids or friends or anything like that. But would you call yourself a control freak? You might say, no, 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 I'm not a control freak. I'm aggressively helpful and I know everything, but I'm not a control freak. Okay, you're, you're, you're a control freak, okay? Let's just, <laughs> let's just be real. Let's just be honest about it. And we all are in some ways. But here's what I want you to see today. I want you to see why and how you're not in control if you didn't realize that. Some of you are like, I, I realize that. Like, I realize I'm not in control. That's why I'm here right now. That's why I wanna know what you have to say today because I've realized I'm not in control. I want you to see what you can do when you lose control. Why that's good news to know that you're not in control and to have lost control. What it means and what it looks like to reach out to the one who's on your left. What does that look like? So if you got your Bible, go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now's a good time to get your phone out, open our app, the City Church Lubbock, download it in your app store um, and follow along with us. There's verses there. There's points and fill in the blanks and things like that that you can do uh, to stay connected and involved and engaged in what we're talking about. And at the end, you can email it to yourself so that you can save it and keep it and take it with you. So John chapter 11, and here's what we're going to see in this chapter. And it's happening all throughout the gospels is that the disciples and people are trying to control Jesus. And we do it too. And when we do, we have unmet expectations because Jesus never does what we want him to do and when we think he should do it. I mean, who does this crazy Jesus think he is, right? I mean, does he really think, is he the son of God? I mean, who does he think he really is? To not do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. Well, this is another example of some of his followers being disappointed, confused, upset, disillusioned that Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do when they want him to do it. And it's probably a familiar passage to some of you. So let's go. John chapter 11, starting in verse one, it says this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So he sent, so, so the sisters, Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, Lord, Lord, 
the one you love is sick. Isn't it interesting? It's like they're trying to remind Jesus. It's not just Lazarus, Jesus. This is the one you love. Like you love this guy. I'm like twisting the arm, right? It's the one you love. The one you love, Jesus, he's sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Let's stop there just real quick. Everything that's about to happen. And if you know this passage, you know what's about to happen. There's tension all the way through this chapter. But Jesus says everything that's about to happen. This is true for you and me. Everything that's about to happen is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. That's the purpose. That's the overarching purpose. That's the overarching story to your life and my life and all of human history is that God would receive glory and that God's son would be glorified. That's the reason you and I exist is for the glory of Jesus. And so when you're not living for the glory of Jesus, that's the the, the vacuum that you feel, that's, that's the, that there's something missing here. That's the, the pain and the regret and the lack of fulfillment and peace that you feel when you're not living for the glory of Jesus because you were wired, you were designed from the inside out to live for the glory of Jesus. The way the designer, it's the way the maker made you. And so when you're not living for what you were created to do, we experience the pain and the regret that comes from not living the way we were designed to live. And so Jesus says this, watch this now. Now Jesus, John wants us to know, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. <laughs> it's almost like, like John's saying, like, listen, you need to know before we continue with this story that Jesus really does love these people. <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, because it's about to seem like he doesn't. What Jesus is about to do is going to make you think he doesn't love you. But John wants you to know Jesus really does love these people. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. But it's about to feel like it's about to seem like he doesn't. You ever felt like that before? circumstances of your life. You look all around you and you're like, God, where are you? Do you see what's happening? Do you really love me? Because if you loved me, you probably wouldn't let this happen to me. John wants you to know, no, no, Jesus loves these people. It's about to seem like they're about to feel like he doesn't, but he does in fact love them. You see, John's writing from the perspective of hindsight. He's able to look back and he's able to see, look, look, we didn't know what was going on at the time. We didn't realize this. We didn't understand this. But now as we look back, we know Jesus did this because he loved us. So let's keep going. Verse six now. So like, what do you mean? Well, because he loves us and because he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, because he loves us. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He hears the one he loves is sick and he stays where he is two more days because remember, he loves them. He stays where he is two more days and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So because Jesus loves them, he stays where he's at. He doesn't go to them right when they ask him to, and when he wants them to. So because he loves them, watch this, he did not do what they wanted them, him to do, and he did not do what they wanted when they wanted him to do it. Why? 
because he loves them. <laughs> I mean, come on. You've got to feel the tension there, right? I mean, we feel it, right? You, you got to feel this almost on a daily basis. Because he loves you, he doesn't do what you want him to do when you want him to do it. Because he loves you. Let's keep going. Verse 11. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. But Jesus has been speaking of his death. His disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so then Jesus tells them plainly, no, listen, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, watch this. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you may believe. I'm glad I wasn't there. And I wasn't there. And it's for your sake. Well, why? What are you doing? What, what, then what are you working here? What, what, what's the purpose here? What are you doing here? So you may believe, so that you may trust in me, so that you may believe in me. But now let us go to him. He told them plainly. They, he didn't know this yet, but Jesus knew Lazarus had died. And he knew staying where he was longer meant that Lazarus would die. And Jesus says, I'm glad I didn't go. I'm glad I stayed here and that Lazarus has died. Wow. That's tough to deal with. Why, Jesus? So that you may believe. So that you'll know that I love you. And so that the Son may be glorified. It's almost like Jesus' goal for his followers is to believe in him and trust in him and not to make them comfortable. Do, do, do you see that too? Like, that's like his, his goal. It's not necessarily for his disciples to be comfortable. It's for them to believe and trust in him. You see, we typically think love means comfort. If he loved me, he would do what I want when I want it. And so faith is often for us a form of manipulation to get what we want when we want it. But faith is actually a patience in this process. It's a patience in this mystery, in this tension. That's faith. It's not comfort. It's not getting what we want when we want it. Faith is a trusting in the process, in this, this mystery, in this tension that we feel all throughout this passage. If you have been through premarital counseling before you got married, chances are you did a study or you read a book called the five love languages. Okay. Maybe you've read it even since then. If you're, if you're married, it's a popular marriage book that, that teaches you that people receive love and experience love in, in different ways. And so as a husband, I might show my wife that I love her in a way that she doesn't get, that she doesn't feel love. Now, I may be speaking the language of love, but she's not receiving it. She's not understanding it. And so she's not feeling loved in the way that I'm trying to, to show it. And so there's a lot, big part of marriage is learning your spouse's love language and being able to speak their language so that they feel loved. And so there's all kinds of different 
Love languages, the book talks about five things like acts of service and quality time and physical touch and gifts of service. And, and, and so, so all these different love languages. I'm very grateful that my wife's love language is physical touch. I just praise God for that, okay? And um, it's setting in, I know, let it set in for a second. You, yeah, okay, all right. I'm very thankful for that. All right, so here's the thing. God's love language is trust and obedience. That's how we show him we love him. In fact, Jesus would often say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Don't, don't say you love me if you're not going to obey my commands. Because by your disobedience, you're speaking to me that you do not love me. Because my love language is obedience. It's trust. And so Jesus was constantly teaching his disciples through things like this. Hey, it's about trust. It's about following me even when things don't make sense. It's about believing in me. So let's keep going. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Do you feel the tension again here? God, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. But I still know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at that last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you Believe this, Martha. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. A couple of verses later, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. She's weeping and she says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had done what we said, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. If you had come when we said to come, almost treating Jesus like a dog. If you had come when we said to come, our brother would still be alive. You ever had one of these moments where you realized you can't control Jesus? And that he often doesn't do what you want him to do when you want him to do it. Have you had these moments where you feel like you've lost control? Maybe not just of Jesus, of people, of circumstances. You realize you can't control what's going on. You've lost control. Well, in the tension here, in this passage, we learn what to do when we lost control. Number one, when you lose control, you trust his ability. You trust what he's able to do. You confess and know by faith what Jesus is able to do. Martha confesses, God will give you whatever you ask. Even now, my brother's died, but even now I know God can do and will do whatever you ask him to do, Jesus. That with you, nothing is impossible. In the words of Jesus, nothing is too hard for me. It's all easy. It's all simple. There are no big and large prayer requests. There are no small and big miracles. It's all easy for me. Nothing is too hard for me. Nothing is impossible for me. 
in the most hopeless of circumstances, Lazarus being dead, her brother having died, Martha confesses, even now, when all hope is lost, even now, I know you can do this, Jesus. You can do it because God will give you and God will do whatever you ask him to do. And then she says this, I know Lazarus will rise again realizing and understanding that God is able to raise Jesus from the grave and will raise Jesus or Lazarus from the grave at the resurrection. I know you can. I know you have power over death. I know you're able. She confesses her belief in his ability. Even though she's not seeing it in the moment, And even though it seems like God hasn't come through for her at this point in time, she trusts his ability. She does not waver in that. Secondly, Martha trusts his identity. She trusts in who Jesus is. She says, I believe that you are the Messiah, that you're the son of God. She believes Jesus is In the words of John chapter one, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. She believes in the words of Paul, Colossians chapter one, that Christ is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. She believes in the words of Hebrews chapter one, that Jesus is the exact representation of the father, that Jesus in his words, his very words, I and the father are one. I am in him. He is in me. She believes Jesus is God. She trusts his identity. She trusts that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that even when you die, if you've believed in Jesus, you'll live. Do you? Have you made that decision? Have you trusted in Jesus's identity that he's the son of God, that he's God in the flesh, that he died on the cross for your sin and rose again three days later? Have you trusted in Jesus? Now, I'm not not talking about if you've been a good person or if you've gone to church. Because Jesus doesn't say here, if you've been a good person or if you do better or try harder, then you'll live even after dying. That's not what he says. Jesus doesn't say do better and try harder. Be a better Christian. Get baptized. Give money. Pray. And then you'll live even after dying. No, no, no. Jesus says, believe in me. Trust in me. Give your life to me. And if you give your life to me, I'll be in you, you'll be in me. And just like I rose from the grave, you will raise from the grave as well. You will be raised from the grave, just like I'm going to be. I'm the resurrection of life. Give your life to me and you will be saved from your sin, which leads to death. See, the Bible says that all of us have sinned. Every one of us have fallen short of God's standard to have a relationship with him and to go to heaven when we die. We've all fallen short. We've broken God's law. Well, when you break man's law, you pay man's fine for sin, right? When you break God's law, you pay God's fine for sin. And God's fine for sin is clear in the scripture. It's eternity separated from him in a place called hell. Jesus himself said, there is a fire in hell that never runs out where the torment and the punishment never end. That's the penalty for sin. And when you stand before God one day, and the Bible says all of us will, 10 out of 10 of us, whether you die or if Jesus comes back, you will stand before God. 
And if you've not given your life to Jesus, you will be guilty of your sin. And you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. You will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you've given your life to Jesus, then through Jesus' death on the cross, he takes the guilt of your sin. He pays the fine of your sin. And when you give your life to him, you're set free. Your sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. It's all gone. It's been finished. You see, the gospel, the good news of the scripture is not you do, but that he did. He did it. He accomplished it. He finished it on the cross. And so your sin, past, present, and future, Hebrews would say it like this, has been paid for once and for all time. Once and for all, it's done, it's finished. And so when you give your life to Jesus, you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven and that your sin, past, present, and future have been forgiven. And so Martha confesses her trust in his identity, that he's the son of God. He's the Messiah, the prophesied one in Isaiah 53, who our punishment would be laid on him and in doing so would bring us peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. Martha said, you're the Messiah. You're the one that Isaiah 53 was talking about. You're the son of God. Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? If you haven't, man, today's your day. Now's your time. Stop running from God. Give your life to Jesus. Jump on our app, fill out the connect form and let us know that you're committing your life to Christ today. Martha, trust in his identity. And then finally, third, when you've lost control, you trust his timing. You trust his timing, not yours. Several years ago for my wife's birthday, I got her a, a trip to New York with one of her friends. And um, I saved for it for a while and, and uh, kind of did some stuff behind the scenes. And then for her birthday, uh, had her go to New York with one of her friends. Well, the one thing she wanted to do when she was in New York was go see Jimmy Fallon. Like that was the big thing that she wanted to do. She wanted tickets to Jimmy Fallon. Well, to get these tickets, you have to get them months in advance. Like they go on sale months before the actual showing. And so we're planning, she knows for the date that she wants to go, We've, we've got to get tickets like at this time on this day, at this morning, because they'll sell out almost instantly. And so we've got everything planned. And she's like, Hey, it's the Eastern time zone. Right. And I'm like, yeah. So we, we've got to, we've got to jump on like an hour uh, ahead of time. She's like, you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm positive. You're sure. Yes. I think so. It's working it all through my head. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. It's like, you're sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Morning comes. She gets on, logs on to get the tickets. They're sold out. It's now earlier. I totally, even now I'm still confused. I don't know what we should have done and how we should have done it, but I got a text from my wife that said the ticket sold out. I was like, man, really that fast? She said an hour ago. Oh, I got mixed up on the time zone thing. It totally threw me off. I should have consulted someone or Google or something. I don't know, but I was totally off on the time zone. And so the tickets were sold out. They sold out instantly and she didn't get her tickets to go see Jimmy Fallon. And I was in trouble. 
was in a lot of trouble because I got the time zones all mixed up. Here's what you need to know. Jesus is on a different time zone. You're like, he's not on central time. No, no, he's not on central time. Okay. So is he he on Eastern time? No, it's not Eastern. Well, okay. Is it mountain or Pacific then? Not on mountain or all you need to know is he's not on your time zone. Okay. It's not your time zone. It's heaven's time zone. That's the time zone that Jesus operates in. It's not ours. Jesus works on his own time zone. And so we've got to trust his timing. You feel the tension here with Mary and Martha, Jesus. It's almost like they're saying in the words of a man who once wanted to follow Jesus, I believe, but I need you to help me with my unbelief. I'm struggling right now. I don't get this. This doesn't make sense. You're not doing what you, you, what, what I thought you were going to do. You're, you're not meeting my expectations and you're not doing things when I want you to do them. So I believe, but I need you to help me with my unbelief. Let's keep going. Verse 33. Now, when Jesus saw Mary weeping at his feet and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, watch this. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept himself. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. It was clear to everyone around them that Jesus loved Lazarus, that he loved Mary, that he loved Martha, and that his heart broke for them as their heart was breaking. And Jesus was deeply moved and troubled in his spirit because of what he was witnessing. And Jesus himself wept with them as they wept. And so can I tell you this morning that regardless of what you're going through, where you've been, the unmet expectation that you've had of Jesus, Jesus does see you. He cares about you and his heart breaks with your heart when it is broken. And he is deeply moved in his own heart when he sees that you are broken. And in this moment, Jesus is weeping right alongside them. Again, walking with him, with his people, going through the experience and the brokenness with them. Verse 37 says this, but some of them, some of the crowd, some of the family and the friends that had gathered that had come, some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Like, he did it for them, but not for him. You you ever had that question? He, where's my miracle? They they got their miracle. Where's my miracle? He did it for them, but not for me. What's up here, Jesus? Couldn't couldn't you, who who did this for them, do something for me? I mean, we've all been there. Why them and not me? Why the, the child of the Roman centurion, but not John the Baptist? John the Baptist in prison got his head chopped off. Why, why them 
but not him. They got their miracle. Where is my miracle, Jesus? You see, we all have something in our lives that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to us because we think that if God loved us, then he would do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. He would do it like this and he would do it right now if he loved me. And when we think like that and when we act like that or live like that, we're met with that unmet expectation. And it disillusions a lot of people. You know, the disciples kind of were in the same boat, like all of their time, all, all the time they were following Jesus, that there were constant unmet expectations. They were constantly confused by what Jesus was doing. Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot was of the sect of Judaism that were called the Zealots. And the zealots wanted to overthrow the Roman government by force, like by the sword. And so Simon the zealot initially probably started following Jesus as a zealot would do, thinking he's the Messiah, thinking this guy's going to be our warlord. He's going to be our commander in chief. And we're going to take down the Roman government. We're going to kill them. And we're about to go to war. The zealots wanted blood. They were known as terrorists. And Simon, one of Jesus' followers, was a zealot. He was from this sect of Judaism. That's not what Jesus would do. James and John, at one point, would ask Jesus to call down fire from heaven after preaching in a town. The people didn't respond, and, and they're leaving the town. And, and James and John tell Jesus, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these people and kill them? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Pause, time out. No, 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 that's not why I've come. I didn't come to condemn people or kill people. I came to save people because you stand condemned already. I came to save you. And so he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, that's not what I've come to do. Again, James and John met with an unmet expectation, thinking they knew what Jesus would want to do. And they got it all wrong. Another time, James and John asked Jesus, hey, we want to be on your left and on your right in the kingdom one day. Like, can we sit on your left and right? And Jesus is like, no, guys, you got it all wrong. Whoever wants to be great among you will be the servant of all. And the first will be last and the last will be first. You see, what you've seen your whole life is people in power ruling over people and keeping other people down, but really, True leadership is being a servant leader. And so the greatest among you, Jesus would say, is a servant of all. You've got, it, you got this all wrong. You're, you're thinking about this from a wrong point of view. Peter, when Jesus told his disciples would, that he would die on the cross, he would be tortured and beaten and die. Peter says this, Never, Lord, you will never die. And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of heaven. You don't have the things of God in your mind. You've got the things of man, the things of the world, the things of the devil on your mind right now. No, Peter, I'm going to die. Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Jesus knows it's the Lord's will. It's the Father's will to crush me in your place for your sin so that he doesn't have to crush you for all of eternity for your sin. 
P- Peter, you, you don't understand. You're not, you're not looking at this right. I'm going to die. That's the plan. It's the will of God. So, so get behind me. You see, Peter had it all wrong. His expectations of Jesus were not met. You see, all the disciples at the beginning saw Jesus, the Messiah, as one who would defeat the enemies of Israel, rid Israel of a Roman pagan occupation, and reestablish the Davidic kingdom. But Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations of him. Most of them hoped to see an earthly, materialistic, political, military, and economic kingdom. So the disciples thought following Jesus, their Messiah, would mean living like conquerors, when in reality, it actually meant dying as martyrs. As things unfolded, though, as they continued to walk with Jesus, as they continued to follow Jesus, they would see their love for him outweigh their unmet expectations. They would see their love for him begin to fill in the gap the tension of not seeing Jesus do what they wanted him to do when they wanted him to do it. All of them except Judas. All of them would see their love for Jesus outweigh their unmet expectations. Except Judas. Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end and not an end in and of itself. Judas saw Jesus as a means to to money and power and control. It's being on the winning team. See, Judas was in it for himself. Everyone else, all the other disciples would see their love for Jesus outweigh their unmet expectations, but not Judas. Judas became disillusioned and he would end up walking away from Jesus and betraying Jesus. You see, control always leads to missing God. Our desire to control, our effort to control always leads to missing out on God's best for our lives. And Judas is one of the best examples of that. Our desire to control, our desire to do things our way and when we want to do them only leads to pain and regret. And so here's my challenge for you today. It's this, it's to trust in the who, not the what, when, or even you. Trust in the who like the identity and ability of Jesus. Trust in Jesus, the the person, not the the what he can do and not even the when he's going to do it. That's not the source of our peace and of our faith. Our answer to our unmet expectations is not a what and a when, it's a who. It's Jesus himself. He's not a means to an end. He's the end in and of himself. He's the reason you exist. You exist for him, for his glory. So trust in the who, in the person, not the what, when, or even you. Your ability to control things because you can't. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. Okay, if you keep reading, that's what happens. By the word of his power, Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. But a few verses later, if you keep reading in John chapter 11, even after the what has taken place, 45 and 46, it says this, 
that some still don't believe and they walk away from Jesus. Proving that it's not the what, it's not the when, it's not the answer you need. It's a person, it's Jesus himself. Even after experiencing the what, the resurrection of someone from the dead, still some don't believe. They turn away from Jesus and they want nothing to do with him. And it proves that the what is not the answer and the when is not the answer. Getting the what and the when that you want isn't going to change your world. It's not gonna change your life. It's the who. You see, control is just a mirage. If something happens you don't like and it feels like you've lost control, well, the reality, the truth is you never had to control to begin with. You see, control is always a lie. And so my challenge for you today is this, is to take and to trust the right hand of God, the right hand of God that represents his power, provision, protection, plan, and sovereign providence. Take his right hand with your left hand that represents humility and need and surrender. And here's why, because you don't have the power to control the right hand of God. You you can't control him, but you always have the power to surrender your left hand. You don't ever have the power to control his right hand, but you always have the power to control and to surrender your left hand and to put your hand in his and trust him. Next week, we're gonna talk more about what surrender looks like. And so I invite you to come, grab a friend, join us. But let's pray and ask God to help us surrender our left hand. God, we pray today, right now in this moment, you would give us the faith to surrender our left hand. God, even when things don't make sense, God, even when we have unmet expectations, even when we're confused, maybe even disillusioned, God, I pray that you would give us the faith right now in this moment to surrender our left hand to your right hand and walk with you. And right now in this moment, I pray with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I pray you would hear the voice of God, the whisper of God right now into your ear on your left. I'm not running by you but I'm right behind you, I'm beside you, and I'm in front of you, I'm on your left. And I'm gonna walk with you. And in the words of the old hymn, would you trust and obey? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. In his name, amen.